Welcome again to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue to work our way through God's Word. This week, Pastor Kirk is back and he's sharing from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Now, if you live in Northwest Arkansas and you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you come and worship with us. We can be found at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And if you need more information, you can call us at 479-442-4634 or you can email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Again, Pastor Kirk is back and he's sharing a message from our series through the book of Ephesians called Rags to Riches. And today's message is simply entitled Faith and Works. It looks at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, as well as a passage in the book of James. Let's listen together. Ephesians chapter 2, and if you want to go ahead and turn over to James chapter 2, we're going to read from that chapter as well. It will be uh, an equal portion of the message today. Uh, Ephesians 2 and James chapter 2. Well, just to kind of remind you what's taking place in the book of Ephesians, uh, we've, t- we've entitled this series of messages from rags to riches. And interestingly enough, it starts off in chapter 1 talking about our riches, our wealth, our abundance of blessings that we have as followers of Christ Jesus. In fact, it talks about how God lavished, extravagantly He lavished His riches upon us. Now, you may not feel very rich today. You may not feel so wealthy today. But indeed, if you're a child of God, you are. You have been blessed in this life far beyond anything any of us ever deserved. And we have immeasurable, is the word in Ephesians 1, we have immeasurable uh, abundance awaiting us in heaven one day. So we are, of all people, the most blessed and the most uh, wealthy walking the face of this earth. Not in temporary things, but in eternal things. Then in chapter 2, Paul steps back And he says, let me remind you where you came from. And we talked about this kind of with a geographical example. And we talked about the fact that uh, in, um, uh, in the state of California, the highest point in all the continental United States is a brief 80 miles away, a short drive away from the absolute lowest place in all the continental United States, which is Death Valley. The highest is Mount Whitney, and the lowest is Death Valley. So as we read Ephesians chapter 2, we begin our journey in Death Valley, the lowest of the lows. We were dead to Christ. We were dead by reason of our trespasses and sins. But because of what God has done, because of grace, we have gone to the very heights of glory. We have been raised together with Jesus Christ to sit in heavenly places. And even though your uh, body, 
your physical life is firmly planted right now here on planet earth understand this is only temporary that you are in spirit already in the presence of God already saved not only saved but secured and sanctified for all eternity and the Christian life consists of after being born again to day by day experiencing progressive sanctification into Christ's likeness. We'll talk a little more about that today. And then we said a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, that there are some kind of prepositions that define this. And we said, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we were saved from God's wrath. God's wrath against unrighteousness. We are saved from the wrath of God. Verse 4 and 5 and verse 8 remind us that we are saved by God's grace. We are saved by God's grace or through God's grace. And then verses 4 and 5 also tell us that we were saved because of God's love. That the reason we're saved is not because of goodness of our own, but because God loves us with a never-ending, with an extravagant love. And then verse 6 and 7 and verse 10 reminded us that we were saved for God's glory. That's what we were saved. We were saved unto something. We were saved for a glorious purpose, and that is not to bring glory to our name, but to bring glory to God's name. Saved from God's wrath, saved by and through God's grace, saved because of God's glory, and saved, or saved because of God's love, and saved for God's glory. We also had an illustration that we've used on a number of occasions. Go ahead and put it up if it's not there. It's the cross, and basically it describes in this very simple illustration uh, how the, all the religions of the world approach the idea of salvation or of conversion and of a hope in heaven above or nirvana or whatever the religious philosophy is. And we said you either believe in do or you believe in done. Now what is the religion of do? It's all those religions, and many of them even go under the term Christian, but they're not truly Christian, and they believe that somehow there is some kind of merit or credit you can earn with God. That somehow you can do enough good things that you will be acknowledged by God as religious and as good enough to have earned a way to heaven, that you can do enough things to earn merit, and you do that through works. That your works earn you some kind of credit or merit with God. And then there is true Christianity. And only Christianity teaches not the religion of do, but the religion of done. That it's not what you do, it's what's already been done for you by Christ. This is not based on merit that you earn, it's based on grace that you did not deserve. 
When you have grace, when you experience grace, you experience forgiveness, you experience mercy, something that you could have never been good enough to earn for yourself. And so how in the world do you access that kind of grace, if not by works? You access it by faith. You access it by trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now understand, it does take works to get you and me to heaven. But understand, it's not our works, it's the work of Christ done on our behalf. So that's why the cross separates and divides these two different religious ideas, religious systems. Does that make sense to you? Nods yes, and if not, for some reason, if you have trouble with that, or questions about that, I would love to visit with you and try to explain it further. Sometimes we preachers are guilty of talking enough that it makes sense to us and presume that it makes sense to everybody else just as well. But I would be happy uh, to answer any questions uh, that you may have. Now, we read these verses in our last message, but we didn't really stop and spend time, and we need to do that this morning. And it's verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. So follow along with me as I read these verses to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Very familiar verses, right? You've heard them read. You've heard them quoted. You maybe have taught them in Sunday school. Nothing unfamiliar about this passage, except maybe our tendency and propensity to overlook what is very plain and what is very, um, what is very common to us, something that we know is easy to take for granted. Let me just make six statements. This isn't the whole of the message. But based upon those three verses, six simple statements uh, that we can be sure of. Number one, we are saved by grace through faith alone. These verses teach us that. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as it's taught in Holy Scripture alone. You don't find it anywhere else. You don't find it in any other so-called holy writings, only in this book. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. We are saved by grace through faith. A second truth, this faith is a gift of God. Now let me pause here for just a minute and say, we read the verse, by the way, uh, that we are saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Different Bible scholars disagree on exactly what the gift of God here is. 
Some say that it's talking about salvation itself. And we would agree, will we not, that salvation is a gift from God, right? Say amen to that. Salvation is a gift from God. Best gift you'll ever be given, okay? An eternal gift. And other scholars say that the gift of God being described here is faith. That faith is the gift that human beings, being dead in their sins, are incapable of coming up with faith in God, let alone the desire to trust God, and, and most of all, the ability to trust God. If you were dead in your sins, that's not something you are capable of. It's not something you would ever choose in your flesh to do. Well, I think I'll trust the Lord. That seems like a great thing, a great idea. No, our flesh rebels against that. And that's why we believe that before we can even exercise faith, God has to begin doing a work of quickening us, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. He has to begin making us alive unto spiritual truth to understand it. And then he gives us the gift, that quickening gives us the ability and the gift to exercise faith in him. And so we do. Now, understand that whichever way you want to interpret what the gift is, I think both of those are true. That faith is a gift, and likewise salvation is a gift. In the Greek language, if you were uh, a student of Greek, you could present an argument here, the way this is worded in the Greek New Testament, to say that the gift of God is salvation itself. But if you go back to the early church fathers, to the writings of those who lived, some of them in James's time during the life of Christ and shortly thereafter, in their writings and in their understanding, and for the next couple of hundred years, you would find that the early church fathers, by and large, all understood this to be talking about faith as the gift of God. That's what they wrote about. That's what they preached. And to be very honest, uh, although we could make a, uh, a language argument for salvation being the gift of God that's being described here, I'm going to go with the early church fathers. They knew the language as close to what Jesus taught and the apostles wrote as anybody. And they emphasized that faith is the gift of God. Okay, a third statement. We are not saved by works. That's very clear and plain, right? Lest anyone should boast. You have no reason, no basis to boast about salvation, that you earned it, that you worked for it. You cannot even claim that you had enough good sense to exercise faith in Jesus. Because that faith was a gift from God. We cannot claim any part of it other than the fact that it's all of grace. And when we think about it, when we talk about it, when we offer uh, praise for it, all the praise and glory goes upward, never inward. Right? Amen? We are not saved by works. A fourth statement here is that we are God's workmanship. Literally, we are God's work. 
Now, that would mean that you can turn to the person sitting next to you and say, you are one piece of work. <laughs> and it'd be a good thing. And it'd be a good thing. You are a piece of work. You're God's work. Now, I, I'll be honest with you, that's been weighing heavy on my heart this past week, and, and we might need to take, you know that I don't get through any book or study very fast, uh, but we may need to just pause before going on and next week talk about what it means to be the work of God, what it means to be His workmanship. Now, I'm going to tell you, that means that whatever choices you make in life, however you choose to live, the direction you go, it should all reflect the hand of God on you and in you at work. Another statement we can draw from these verses, we are saved for good works. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. And good means profitable, generous, it means upright, it means virtuous. You are saved for that kind of work in this life. Your life should reflect that which is profitable, generous, upright, and virtuous in the eyes of God. Not saved by works, but saved for good works. And then these works, this is the sixth statement, these works were prepared in eternity past for us. When the Bible uses the words in the Greek language beforehand, that which is translated beforehand, it has reference to eternity past. Even before Adam was created, God had prepared these good works for you and me to do. Well, these good works do not originate from the believer as they are planned and purposed by God, right? Therefore, they cannot be said to merit salvation or faith. I believe that so far, so good, we are all on the same page together, right? Do you believe these words? Now look over to James chapter 2, and let's let James mess with us just a little bit. By the way, I don't know if it came up on the screen, but, but this is concerning good works. Good works are never the root of salvation, but they should be the fruit of salvation. Good works are not the root, not the cause. They are the fruit. They are the result of, okay? So then we get over to Brother James. This is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the James, not that was an apostle. This is the James that did not believe and follow Christ when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry. This is the James that was only converted after the resurrection of Jesus. And this is what James had to say. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. First of all, he talks about dead faith. In this chapter, he's going to talk about three kinds of faith. First of all, dead faith. What good is it, verse 14, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, 
be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you mark in your Bibles, and you should, don't mark in the church Bible, okay? Mark in your own Bible. <laughs> Underline verse 17. So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Now James doesn't go into any kind of detail to explain whether or not dead faith can save a person or get them to heaven, but I would be very reluctant to depend upon it. How about you? If it's dead faith, then how in the world can it be a living faith, the kind that the Lord uh, died to provide for us? If, it is the, if faith is the gift of God, why would God give you the gift of dead faith? Why would he do that? I'm suggesting to you dead faith is exactly that. It is some kind of profession that you follow Christ, some kind of profession that you believe in Christ that has never resulted in a changed life. Okay, dead faith. Now I believe in the next couple of verses... He's going to explain to us that dead faith is actually a demonic faith or even a devilish faith. Look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe, and they shudder. Even the, even the demons believe that God is one. There's not a single atheist demon anywhere. Did you know that? Because the demons know. There's reason to believe they are fallen angels. They know that God is alive and well, that He's the Creator, that Jesus is the Savior. And he says, if you will show me your faith apart from your works, basically he's saying, how are you going to show me your faith? Apart from works, how can you show me what's in your heart? All you can do is offer some kind of profession. But if it has not changed you, if it has not resulted in works, it is a dead faith, it is a devilish, demonic faith. And then thirdly, beginning in verse 20, he explains to us what dynamic living faith looks like. And he uses two examples from the Old Testament. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Consider this example. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, we could stop and chew on that for a while, 
But I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit to make sense out of that to you. It's very clear. It's very straightforward. And it is somewhat disturbing that Abraham was not justified by faith alone, but by faith that resulted in works, obedience to God. And in the same way, was also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This too is the word of the Lord, is it not? Dead faith, demonic, devilish faith, and dynamic faith. And two examples of dynamic living faith. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the Jewish, Jewish race. Abram, who was called out of paganism in Ur of the Chaldees and made to father a great people, an example of great faith. And then Rahab, a non-Jew, a pagan, who also trusted God and that trust and faith in God caused her to do something in her works that demonstrated that faith. And so Jew and Gentile alike, righteous and unrighteous alike, good and immoral alike, for everyone the same story is true. And that is real faith, Dynamic faith is the faith that's going to demonstrate itself through a changed life and through good works. It leads us to this key truth. I hope you'll write it down. True conversion requires good works in two respects. First of all, Christ worked for us in His sinless life, sacrificial death, substitutionary death, and His bodily resurrection. It took the works of Christ to make salvation available to you and me. Amen? And then, individually for you and me, our good works, after being saved, our good works as a result of Jesus' forgiveness and mercy on our behalf, a changed life, as a result of faith in our hearts that the works that are produced by us, like Abraham and like Rahab, also confirm and affirm true faith and true conversion. Now let's take a few minutes to just try to unpack all of that because you see, at first reading, at initial glance, Paul and James are in direct opposition to each other. It seems as though Paul is emphasizing and repeatedly doing so that grace and faith in his preaching and teaching and his writing is the only way of salvation. And then you read James. And James, the brother of our Lord, comes along and says that faith without works is dead and that Abraham of old was justified by his works. These two men seem to be arm wrestling with one another over what true conversion consists of, what true faith 
consist of. Did you know that uh, James was one of the final and last books that was ever adopted into the canon of Scripture, the body of Scripture? For this very reason, it seemed that he was in opposition to Paul and the other message of the Bible. And so uh, early in church history, there was reluctance to allow the book of James into the body of Scripture known to us today as the Bible. Uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I have read that Martin Luther, the great reformer, that he never did accept the message of James because of this very passage that we read, that he rejected James altogether. Now, we know that the Bible does not conflict or disagree with itself. Don't we know that? Please nod your head, yes. Make some kind of a, I believe that. Okay, good. We believe that the Bible is in perfect harmony with itself. That Scripture is the total message and Word of God to us. That it is inspired in its transmission and it is preserved in its passing down to you and me today that we can have all the confidence in the world that the Bible we hold in our hands from Genesis to Revelation is the Word of God. It doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God, holy, inspired, and we can have confidence in it. So then if that's so, what are we going to do with Paul and James who seem to be in conflict with each other? How do we make sense out of this? Well, I think we need to back up, first of all, and ask ourselves, what would Jesus have to say about grace, faith, and works? What did Jesus have to say about this? I mean, after all, Jesus is even more of an authority than Paul and James, right? So let's consider what Jesus had to say. A few samplings of what Jesus had to say about faith. In Matthew chapter 8, we don't have time to turn there, but he said he commended a Roman centurion of all people, a Roman centurion, and he commended him for his faith and said, you have a greater faith than any faith that I have seen in all of Israel. He commended that man for his faith. He said nothing about his works. In Luke 7, Jesus said these words, Your faith has saved you. And he said that to a sinful, immoral woman who was known for her immorality. And he said to her, Your faith has saved you. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story of a Pharisee who was known for his acts of religious devotion and a tax collector who realized that his only hope was God's mercy, for he was a sinful cheat. He was a dishonest man. And Jesus tells the story about this religious Pharisee and this very sinful cheat of a tax collector. And he said, the tax collector is the one who went home that day forgiven and justified, not the man who was religious in his works. All the tax collector had was faith. 
the Gospel of John alone, if you take just the Gospel of John, the word faith or believe is used 98 times in this one single book. At one point, uh, the Jews asked what they had to do to perform God's works. This is in John 6. What must we do to perform God's works? And Jesus replied, this is how you do God's works. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the one that the Father has sent. So Jesus emphasized faith, right? Would you agree? Faith faith alone. But listen to what Jesus had to say about works. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 18 teaches that those who refuse to forgive others will not be forgiven themselves. Forgiveness is a work, is it not? It's something you do. Is there anybody in your life, in your experience, you have trouble forgiving? Someone who cheated you? Someone who cheated on you? An employer who was wicked and hard to work for and profane? Someone who mistreated you or mistreated someone very precious to you? Your children, your grandchildren? You have trouble with forgiveness? Can I admit to you, there are a couple of people in this world I struggle to forgive. I really struggle to forgive. And you know how I usually deal with that? Whenever the thought of that person or those persons comes up, I try to force it out of my head so that I don't have to remember what Jesus said about it. Jesus said, if you do not forgive, you will not have forgiveness. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, Only those who bear good fruit are truly saved. Only those who bear good fruit are truly saved. In John 5, he says, Those who have, quote, done good will experience, quote, the resurrection of life. If you have done good, you will experience the resurrection. In Matthew 7, at the conclusion of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The person that's going to go to heaven is the person who does the will of the Father who is in heaven, not the person who professes, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior, if that profession doesn't have anything else to go along with it. So going back to the teachings of Jesus, I started to say that doesn't help us one bit, but going to what Jesus says always helps us, okay? But it doesn't answer the question for us. For Jesus emphasized both faith, and so Paul would say, I call upon Jesus as my witness. And then he also emphasizes works. 
So James, the brother of Jesus, says, Well, I call upon Jesus also, because Jesus taught works as well as faith. Now, the key to understanding the relationship, please laser in, focus in with me for just a few more minutes, and we'll wind this up, okay? Focus in with me, because there is a place that these two things that seem so opposed to each other actually fit like a hand in a glove. Follow with me. The key to understanding the relationship between faith and works is to identify the timing of the works. The timing of the works. When Paul repeatedly emphasizes over and over again, not just in Ephesians, but in Romans and other places, that works cannot save you, he is talking about pre-salvation works. You understand pre-salvation works. He's talking about works that you do in your religious practice, in, in your personal morality, all the works you can accomplish, that you can achieve, you wrap them up into one package, and let me tell you this, they will not get you one inch closer to heaven than the worst Hitler that ever lived. You can be the best person that ever walked this planet with the most good works in the eyes of humans. You can wear yourself out doing good for others and trying to save lives and trying to help people who are down and out and all the rest. You can join every church in town. You can be baptized not once, when the Bible says there's only one baptism, amen. You can be baptized a dozen times. You can read the Bible from cover to cover. You can do all these things, and you will spend an eternity with Hitler, with Saddam Hussein in a devil's hell. You say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Well, understand, it's not a matter of fairness as you count it. It's a matter of fairness from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, why should He ever have to give up a sinlessly perfect son in order to take care of your willful and disobedient sins? Nobody deserves heaven. Everyone deserves hell. So if God were to turn the whole human race into hell, He would be a good and a holy and a righteous God yet. It wouldn't change the character of God. But God is a God who is extravagant, who has lavished His love and His mercy on us. And Paul is saying all of these works won't get you to heaven. But James comes along and he's talking about post-salvation works. He's talking about not the works that led you to Christ and salvation. He's talking about the good works that flow from your life as a result of salvation. And my friend, listen to me. Those ought to be abundant in your life and in mine. Good works because 
of what Christ has done for us. Because he lavished his grace upon me, because he loved me, because he gave me the gift of faith, he quickened my heart that day when I was nine years old on a Wednesday night at 23rd and Broadway Street in Little Rock, Arkansas, in a revival meeting, he quickened my heart and made it alive and caused me to want salvation and to want him and he entrusted into me the gift of faith that I exercised in him and without saying a word to my mom and dad who were living like the devil anyway I stepped out and made my way to the front and listened to me God saved my soul before I ever got to the preacher you know why not because walking aisle saves you but because the battle and the choice was made back where I was sitting. And when I made that choice to exercise the faith that God gave me, God saved my soul. There'll not be anybody in heaven ever who was not chosen by God first in eternity past. Likewise, listen to me now, there will not be anyone in heaven that, net, that did not make the personal choice to exercise the faith that God gave them. It took God's choice and also my choice that was empowered and strengthened and made possible by the gift of faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me begin to draw this to a close. Pre-salvation works never saved anybody. Not by works, lest anyone should boast that my works got me here. But post-salvation works. Faith that is truly alive unto God, that results in a changed set of affections in my heart. A changed disposition towards God and His Word. A changed desire to do something that brings honor and glory to God in this life. A willingness to walk in His footsteps and to carry on His works. Because listen to me, Jesus told, said in John 16, that last night in the upper room, not only the works that I do, but even greater works will you do as you follow after me. Saved from God's wrath. Saved by and through God's grace. Saved because of God's love. Saved for God's glory. So in this chapter alone, I've given you a geography lesson. I've given you a, an English lesson with the prepositions. Prepositions that make for us some propositions to believe and live by. Can I close today with a mathematics lesson? How about the salvation equation? That's what I call it. First of all, there is a wrong equation. The wrong equation goes like this. Faith plus works equals salvation. Wrong. Wrong every time. 
Salvation is by faith and faith alone. The equation is to discern what faith is. And so here's the right equation when it comes to salvation. Faith equals salvation plus works. Real faith is salvation plus works. A salvation that leads to works. Why? Because of a changed heart and a changed life. Do you see the difference? Do you understand the difference? It may seem very insignificant, but it's all the difference in the world. It may seem very subtle, but it is everything. So the really the heart of the matter is this. Is my faith real? I didn't ask how much faith you had, for Jesus said even the tiniest amount of faith can work miracles. The question is, is your faith the real deal? Is it the real deal? It should confirm the validity of your faith. Works in your life. If you have the real thing, when you profess faith in Christ, Ephesians 2 and James 2 should have one of two effects. It should confirm the validity of your faith and spur you on to good works. Or else it should help you realize here today that your faith that which you are putting the confidence of your eternal soul in may not be the real deal. If it was an experience in the past without a change in the present, it very likely was a false experience. If it was simply a prayer uttered after a preacher, maybe he, quote, got you to pray the prayer. I want to tell you that's not how the Bible describes salvation and conversion. That's why so many people today profess Christ but don't live for Christ, are nowhere near the church on Sunday. They don't have any fellowship with the communion of saints, the fellowship of saints. They don't care about that. They don't long for that. It means nothing to them because they never had real faith to begin with. Because real faith makes a difference. Has your faith in Christ changed how you interact with and love your neighbor? Has your faith in Christ made you a better husband, a better wife, and a better employee or employer? Has it made you a better friend? Has your faith in Christ given you a love for the Lord's church? Has it made you a better church member? Has your faith in Christ motivated you to follow Him in scriptural baptism as Caitlin did today? Some of you have professed faith in Christ, but you've never followed the Lord in baptism. And the question is, why not? Has your faith led to you offering a real testimony to the church and to others that Christ is living in your heart? Has your faith in Christ given you a deeper love for God and His Word? 
Grace and works. Faith and works. They don't disagree. They don't conflict. They are like the right hand and the left. They work together for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the life and the blessings of life we have through him and because of him. And so, Father, today, thank you for what your word teaches us. Thank you for what Paul had to say, what Peter had to say, what James had to say, what others had to say regarding this matter of what it means to truly be people of faith. And I pray that it will be true about our lives, that we will show to you and to others our faith by the works that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.